Father, we're so grateful to be gathered again as your church. To be a church, the word literally means that we have assembled, that we have come together, and we've done so in your name. And we miss all the people who can't be here this morning. I pray that you would bless them and keep them safe wherever they are. Thank you for those who are joining us online. And Lord, in these circumstances, fasten our attention on you and thank you for the truth of what we've been singing, that in you we are loved and secure and safe because your wounds have paid our rescue. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We need a term for the days between Christmas and New Year. I'm convinced of it. Uh, this strange, sweet little season between Christmas Day and the New Year. Welcome. If you're here for the first time, uh, my name is Bruce Garner, and this is a, an unusual Sunday. It, it's unusual every year, the Sunday right after uh, Christmas. It's especially so this year. It's cold in Huntington Beach, California. Am I right? We got people watching us back east. Tell them how cold it is. We're freezing. It's like, it's like 62 degrees. And yes, these are palm trees on, uh, on my shirt, I believe. I'd like you to open your Bibles, please, in the book of Philippians. And I'm hoping that I can elicit a little bit of participation and a little bit of, of conversation between you and me, maybe even among yourselves, the people you came to church with safely there in your little socially distanced pod. Because today we're going to talk about the biblical grace of contentment. Have you been very content in 2020? How's that going? What most of us have experienced in 2020 is a never-ending battle to change our own circumstances and hoping that circumstances that are beyond our control will change again so that we can be satisfied. It's not built for contentment. Nothing in our culture is built for contentment. Much of our economy is based on the idea of making you discontented with what you have. Commerce, constant production, increasingly better goods, the American dream of getting ahead and doing better than your own, uh, doing better for yourself and better for your children. None of these are necessarily bad things, but they're all make it very difficult to be contented. Today, I'd like to talk to you for the first time of the next three weeks, I'd like to talk to you about this biblical idea of contentment. We're going to do a doctrinal study in a sense. I will be primarily in one text, but we'll go in other places in the Bible to talk about how we can be content. But first, we need to define our terms, okay? So, without moving around or much, uh, without much drama that would upset the, this healthy little safe environment we've created. I want you to think first to yourself, then if you came to church with somebody, talk a little bit amongst yourselves about how you would define the word contentment, okay? First service wasn't too into it, but I'm a stubborn person and I'm pretty determined to make this work, okay? How would you define the idea of contentment, okay? First for yourself, and then maybe discuss the ideas you came to, you came, of people you came to church with.
for those of you online, people are, they're doing their best. They're, they're working hard. You at home don't check out. How would you define what it means to be content? Did you come up with something? Okay, talk to me. Contentment and happiness, are they the same thing? What's the difference? Happiness depends on what happens. Contentment is deeper. Contentment is better. What did you come up with? Give me a definition or two. Satisfaction. Satisfaction with what? Satisfaction with what you have. That's a pretty good working definition. I'd like you to open your Bibles in Philippians chapter 4 and hear the testimony of a man who learned to be content. I'm not exactly apprehensive. I've kind of given that over to God, but I am a little bit humbled in talking about contentment because anybody who knows me, my family in particular, who is here listening to this, will tell you that contentment does not come naturally to me. I've found things in Scripture, and I've been on a journey for the last three years, actually, working on this idea, not this sermon, but this idea of how people can be resilient and how people can be joyful and how people can be at peace in spite of their circumstances. I've been on that journey for three years. I've learned a lot. I've grown a lot, but I'm here to tell you, I'm talking to you about contentment today from the position of a fellow struggler. My sense of satisfaction, you're right, satisfaction is a key part of it, that is shaken all too easily. My wife and I have been together between dating and marriage for 30 years now. And she'll tell you that one of the burdens of being married to me is it's hard for my little mind to settle. It's hard for me to be in the moment. I'm either looking back or racing ahead. That's called anxiety, not contentment. A biblical idea of contentment, I'm gathering from a lot of different sources here, but the way I would define contentment is this. Contentment is, contentment is satisfaction with Christ and what He has provided to you in that moment. Satisfaction with Christ and what He has provided to you in that moment in a way that frees you from envy, from anxiety, and from complaining. Someone who is contented is satisfied with Jesus and the things that Jesus in that moment has provided to them, whatever they may be, and they are satisfied enough with that that it keeps them from being anxious, it keeps them from complaining, and it keeps them from envying. I'm going to talk to you a great deal about anxiety because I believe that's the plague of our age. I believe we were already headed in that direction. I believe that smartphones and the internet and constant connectivity had a great deal to do with it. And then we had this thing called a pandemic that made many of us for months stay inside and depend on screens. I know that anxiety has risen to levels that we probably have never before seen in modern life. I know that people young and old are more anxious, are having a harder and harder time of settling their mind and being content. In other words, being satisfied as Christians in that moment with Jesus 
And whatever Jesus has provided in that moment, again, in a way, it may not be perfect, it, not, it may not be complete, you may still be on the journey toward contentment, but you're satisfied enough that you're not envying what others have. You're not complaining about your own lot in life, and you're not anxious about the circumstances that you find yourselves in. Does that make sense so far? Look in Philippians chapter 4, and you'll find this testimony from a man who learned to be content. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul is writing a letter of thanks to the church at Philippi. They were an extraordinary church because Paul was, without a doubt, the greatest missionary the world has ever seen. Then and now, current and future missionaries look to Paul as our best and ultimate example of what it looks like for an ordinary Christian to extend the gospel to others across culture. And Paul, in Philippians 4, writes this letter to this extraordinary church, and what made them unique is Paul says they and they alone have been his financial support. Paul's normal mode of operation is that he kept his trade. He was a tent maker. And wherever Paul went, he worked a job. He worked his trade to provide for his own needs. He did that to keep himself as much as he could free from the criticism of others. Paul had many critics, and one of the constant criticisms was he's only telling you about Jesus to enrich himself. So Paul gave up his rights, worked his trade, but was so often persecuted, was so often imprisoned, was so often beaten and malnourished that he found himself continually in physical need. And the only church that bothered to help him was the church at Philippi. That really is the heart of the letter. It is, it is an extended, joyful thank you letter that Paul wrote them from prison telling them from the very first verses that he is grateful for their partnership with the gospel. They have linked arms with him to spread the name of Jesus in a way that no one else has. Paul is very grateful to them, so he tells them in the book of Philippians to keep a humble attitude among themselves, keep the same mindset that Jesus demonstrated when he was on earth on his way to the cross to stay unified so that the gospel could keep going out from Philippi. And at the end of the letter, because it's a thank you letter, Paul is going to be very specific and very practical in giving thanks. And along the way, in two verses, he says something that if you understand what he's telling you is absolutely amazing and very, very comforting for people who struggle with complaining, who struggle with anxiety, who struggle with envy, because Paul says he learned to be content. Philippians 4 verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance... I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. 
And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. I've told you that a biblical definition, pulling from things across the Bible, a biblical idea of contentment is satisfaction with Jesus and what he has provided to you in that moment. Satisfaction that is deep enough, real enough, that it keeps you from being envious, it keeps you from complaining, and it keeps you from being anxious. This, in Philippians 4, from the the verses we just read, is Paul's testimony about contentment. We need to understand, first of all, what we're talking about. Because nothing in our culture is built to make us content, and contentment has be, a lack of contentment has become, I think worldwide, but especially in the United States, sort of an acceptable sin. That if you're always pushing forward, you're always wanting more, you're never satisfied, not only is that a bad thing, that might actually be a very virtuous thing. You might be the best among us. Let's talk about first what contentment is not. First of all, Contentment does not mean that you are indifferent or unemotional. Look in Philippians 4 again in verse 10. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord, how? Greatly. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Contentment does not mean that you are unemotional or indifferent to circumstances. If you are utterly indifferent to what happens to you, if you are disconnected from the circumstances of your life, what is more likely is that you are actually depressed, not content. Contentment is that grace that you can receive from Jesus to be in all kinds of different circumstances, especially difficult circumstances, and find yourself, because of Him, to be satisfied anyway. Contentment is not a denial of what is actually happening. It is not emotional uninvolvement. It is not indifference. For the last few weeks, we've been talking about the actual true humanity of Jesus. We learned in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, that Jesus, as he grew, grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor, it says, with God and man. When we meet the man Christ Jesus, for instance, in John chapter 11, John has gone to the home of the family that apparently he loved the most on earth, the home of Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. And in John chapter 11, Lazarus is several days dead. When he arrives, he has two difficult conversations with both of those women, with Lazarus' sisters. If you go back and read it, don't do it now, but there is a tinge of accusation in what they say to him. They say to him, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Then Jesus goes to the tomb. Do you remember what we're famously told about Jesus when he stands before the tomb of Lazarus? What did Jesus do? Now that's true humanity. 
Jesus isn't pretending to cry. He's not like a smarmy televangelist that is crying for effect. I was told once of a preacher who had a note in his sermon notes that said, cry here. Okay? That's fake. That's hypocrisy. That's for effect. That's oratory. Jesus is actually shedding human tears. Jesus is grieved in heart. At the tomb of Lazarus, later in the Garden of Gethsemane, he is deeply troubled in his spirit because he is an actual human being. He is fully in touch with his emotions. He is fully in touch with reality. He is not indifferent to difficulty. That is not contentment. Number two, contentment does not mean in the same way. Contentment does not mean that you deny your difficulties. Look in verse 12, uh, 11 and 12. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Count up the negative words that Paul's going to mention here. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Look through that verse and find the words that describe difficulty in Philippians 4 and verse 12. Do you see them? What are they? The hard words, the words that say that Paul's life is not ideal. I know how to be brought low. I know how to be brought down. Paul says, I have learned how to be humbled. In any of every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul's saying, I have lived every human experience. I know how to have more than enough. I know how to be well-fed and well-cared for. I know what luxury is, and I also know what it means to be crushed. I know what it means to be, go hungry. I know what it means to be in physical need. Please understand, Paul is not denying the reality of his circumstances. He is saying, this is hard. I am being humbled. I have been brought low. I am feeling hungry. Because our culture has lost its sense of moral consensus, I don't know if you've noticed, just in the last few years, and this 2020 has accelerated that, as a nation, we no longer have a way that we agree upon to say that anything is right or wrong. And that has made the whole country very anxious. When you point out that something is right and worth doing, or when you point out that something is wrong and evil, unless it is a very small group of cardinal sins, the likely answer from somebody is, according to who? Who says we need to do that? Who says that that's wrong? And for the first time in our nation's history, we have really lost a foundation and a compass that tells us which way is north, which way is right, and which way is wrong. And that has created tremendous anxiety because now good and evil practically are being negotiated. They're being campaigned about. You have to align yourself with other groups and join hands with other factions to put forward what you think is virtue and to protect yourself from what you say is evil. 
And that has made us more anxious, more angry, more envious, more bitter probably than we've ever been, certainly in my lifetime. And what's very interesting, with that moral foundation gone, what many, many people have turned to, including and particularly in my reading and in my listening to podcasts, what people with no belief in God whatsoever are turning to is meditation. Very public, very angry, very militant atheists reject the very idea of God but are turning to things like meditation. What are they trying to do? In coping with this world that makes no sense, that is filled with injustice, we can't even agree anymore on what is unjust, they are turning to, they are turning inside, they are turning to techniques brought from the East or created from secular therapy to calm their minds, to disconnect from reality, which they find so very painful. I want you to understand that Jesus, the Son of God, become a human being. He lives in reality as it actually is. He is never Pollyanna saying that all is well when things are actually awful, and he's never overly dramatic amplifying something that is difficult because he wants the attention. Have you done either one of those things, by the way? A basic component of psychology, I went through this in seminary, they made us take a test, and they told us when it was over whether we had the inclination to fake good or fake bad, and everybody leans one way or the other. People who fake good go through hard times and say, everything's fine. How you doing? I'm, I'm doing great. Well, it looks like you just broke both legs. Yes, maybe, but I'm fine. That's faking good. Other people are those who fake bad. They just go through ordinary things, but if you look on their Facebook post, it is the worst thing that's ever happened to any human being. The entire universe has come against me. I don't know if I'll make it out this time. They are prone not to denial, but to drama. Anybody here like that? Please don't point at them if that's, uh, if that's someone you live with. I'd like to have a few days off to enjoy my family. Okay? What I'm trying to tell you is the biblical virtue of contentment doesn't depend on denying what's actually happening. When Jesus is in front of the tomb of Lazarus, he is actually weeping. Just because you know the end of the story doesn't mean that you don't cry at the sad parts. And most importantly, number three, to me the most encouraging thing in all that Paul has taught us here, Number three, contentment does not mean that you will naturally be contented. Paul is telling you, and he said it twice, contentment must be learned. Look again in Philippians chapter 4. He said in verse 11, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can't tell you how comforting it is to me that Paul says he learned to be content. And if you just think through what that means for a moment, what that means is that Paul had moments in his life where he thought to himself, this isn't fair. I deserve better than this. This shouldn't be happening. I wish God would step in and deal with them. 
I wish I weren't in this situation. I don't deserve this. If Paul learned to be content, there must have been times where Paul himself was stricken with anxiety, made comparisons and was envious of the lot of others and wanted better for himself and complained. Sometimes we mystify Paul. We make him less than human. My number one Bible reading tip down through the years to you has been to slow down. I want you to see that in the space of two verses, Paul makes a humble confession. He says, I have learned how to be content. I wonder when he wasn't. It might have been the first time they bound his hands together to a wooden post so that a, wooden, so that a Roman soldier could come out and lash him. It might have been one of the many times Paul looked in an ancient mirror and found his eyes bloodshot and sunken into his skull, found himself increasingly emaciated because he had been hungry for so long. It might have been one of the many times when Paul thought that people who were true believers in Jesus and allies in his mission of spreading the gospel could be counted on, but actually he discovered that they had abandoned him and deserted him, leaving him all alone. If you find yourself to be an anxious person, a discontented person, a grumbling and a griping person, if you find yourself to be the kind of person who is continually making comparisons with the life, the family, the money, the career, the looks of other people, and resenting what they have and resenting what you've been given in return, I want you to know this. You're in good company. Every single Christian, even the Apostle Paul, who I think we would widely agree is perhaps the greatest follower of Jesus that we're told of in the New Testament, even he says, I learned it. He says, I've learned the secret. What is that secret? That secret is found in verse 13. It says, I can do all things through him. Some translations provide who Paul's referring to. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the secret. Now that verse, unfortunately, is so motivational and so powerful that you normally hear it at sports games. The end of the football game, some genetic masterpiece has bested another genetic masterpiece and scored the touchdown through blood, sweat, and tears. And he rips his helmet off because they won the championship. And they say, how do you feel? And he says, I just want to give credit to God because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And all of Christian America says, praise the Lord, he's a believer, good for you, buddy. And good for him. I hope that happens this Sunday. But what I want you to see is... That verse, I can do all things through the one who strengthens me, has absolutely nothing to do with scoring touchdowns or any other achievement. The achievement, according to Paul, is that you can be contented. In other words, you can be satisfied with Jesus and satisfied in that moment with what Jesus has provided, no matter how difficult your circumstances are. And the reason for that is right here in those few verses. The reason you can be contented, according to Paul's testimony in Philippians chapter 4, is this. Contentment depends on your satisfaction with Christ, not your circumstances. 
if Jesus really is Savior and Lord, if Jesus really is in charge, that means that your circumstances, difficult as they may be, are not out of his control. And you may not understand why he has brought you into the difficult place you find yourself in, but you can rest assured in the fact that he still loves you, he is still in control of all of it, including you, and most of all, that he is still with you. This testimony from Philippians 4, according to Paul, gives us three simple truths. Contentment means that you are satisfied because you know that Jesus will never leave you. Look carefully at verse 13 again. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What Paul is telling you is in those moments when he was being brought low, in those moments when Paul was hungry, in those moments when Paul was needy, Jesus was still with him. And please take that to heart. Jesus' final promise on earth, according to Matthew 28, when Jesus gave the Great Commission, he said to his disciples, go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you, and then those are all instructions, here's the promise, and I am with you always. There will never be a moment in your life from the moment you trust Jesus that Jesus won't be with you. Well, let's be real and let's be practical. We're going to get really practical. I'm going to show you how to put this into practice in just a few more minutes. Have you always felt, have you always had the experience in every circumstance that Jesus is always with you, or have there been moments when he felt very distant and you felt quite alone? Speaking for myself, there have been moments when I've had to rely on the promise because in my experience, I felt alone. I felt deserted. I felt as if no one cared, including him. That's discontentment. Paul must have been there at some moment. But the extraordinary promise is that Jesus can always strengthen you first because Jesus is always with you. The first thing to remember is that whatever happens to you, whatever you are brought through, you will never actually be alone. What we need to learn to do and where we're headed next, we need to learn how to cultivate our awareness of what is already true, that Jesus is already with us. Secondly, because Jesus is with us, number two, Christ can always strengthen us. That's right there in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 13. Jesus will never leave you, and secondly, he will personally strengthen you. This is quite a promise. That whatever you find yourself in, whatever you've lost, whatever has been taken from you, this is Paul's testimony. What was taken from him? His freedom. Food was taken from him. Friendship was taken from him. All of his support, everything that Paul loved, everything that Paul depended upon on earth was taken from him. And yet his experience at the end of his life with all the lessons learned is that Jesus was not only with him, but Jesus was strengthening him. Look in 2 Timothy. Let me show you what I mean. 
2 Timothy chapter 4, please. This is Paul's final letter. This is the letter that Paul writes just before they kill him. It's written to strengthen and encourage Timothy, who reading between the lines is himself a man given to tears, is himself a man given to anxiety, like me. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14. Notice you're right at the end of the letter. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. That's reality. That's an example of what I was telling you, that contentment does not deny the reality and the hardship and the loss. At the end of his life, shortly before they killed him, Paul names a specific person and says, that man really hurt him, really hurt me. And he turns him over to God. I'm going to talk to you about that next week. I'm going to talk to you about bitterness and how to deal with people who have abused you and mistreated you. Verse 16. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. It's quite a statement. You see, aside from Jesus Christ, nobody loved people the way Paul did. No one. In 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul's writing a different church, and he says, we were well pleased not just to give you the gospel, we wanted to give you our very lives. There's a lot of people that will remind you of the gospel if you are blessed with even a few Christians who will also give you their life, you're very blessed indeed. Even most pastors, even most preachers will stand at a certain distance from people and just give them gospel, gospel, gospel. You want my life, you want my concern, you want my compassion, that's not on the table. Just here's the message, don't expect me. Paul, like no one else on earth aside from Jesus, gave not only the gospel message, Paul gave himself. How was he repaid? Verse 16, at my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. In other words, it doesn't that they weren't available, it's that they ran. Everyone saw what was happening to Paul and they bailed. May it not be charged against them, he says. Look how contented he is. Look how contented he is to turn things over to God. But verse 17 is huge. This is why I'm showing it to you. It says, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Does he sound contented to you? Why? Because his experience was as everyone on earth deserted him, who came to him? Jesus. Jesus personally came to Paul. Jesus personally, spiritually stood by Paul and, don't miss it, he strengthened him. Now let me be really clear and really practical and teach you how I have learned over the last two or three years to cultivate this contentment that I'm telling you about. We're going to do that by showing you something that Jesus commanded us to do that all of us disobey him in practically every day. And then, 
I'm going to tell you practically. You may improve on my process. But I want to tell you how I practically have learned the three steps I take to obey Jesus. Look with me in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 25. Um, Verse 31, this whole paragraph, this whole section of the Sermon on the Mount has to do with anxiety. Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 31, therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Pay special attention to this last verse. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I'm sharing this with you as a fellow struggler because... I have an anxious mind. You may be made differently. God makes people differently and our experiences and our falling into sin, the way we were treated by others, all kinds of different factors contribute together to what we could call our temperament. Some people's minds are naturally calm and settled and peaceful. Others like mine are continually in fifth gear and continually anxious. It doesn't have to do with necessarily your Christian maturity. It's just your starting point of, based on the way you were made and based on the things that happened to you, what your starting point is in contentment. It took me a long time to learn to accept my temperament, but not to be satisfied with it, but to actually obey what Jesus said when he said, do not be anxious about tomorrow because each day has enough trouble of its own, okay? As an example, when we were in Mexico, I met two very different pastors. They were both good men, but they were both very different. One was one of the most self-controlled people I've ever, ever met. I mean, nothing, if, if he was capable of, of being rattled, I never saw it. His emotional variability on a scale of one mile was about that much. He just, nothing bothered him. If he was, if his head suddenly caught on fire, I sincerely believed he would sit down and write out a three-point plan of what to do with it, okay, and follow up with a report to make sure that it never happened again. That was one. The other was so empathetic and so tender, probably because he grew up, he was one of those boys you see selling pencils and selling chewing gum at, at the stoplights in Mexico. He grew up in Mexico City, desperately poor. His heart, between his calling and his brokenness, he was the kind of person who could go to the bedside of a stranger at the hospital, hear what the doctor had just told them, and be so moved that he would be crying with them, having met them five minutes earlier. Now, who do you think I wanted visiting me when I was sick? I wanted the second guy. And then as it dragged on and I felt sorry for myself and I didn't want to leave the house, then I needed the second man to come along and tell me to dry my tears and be a bit more, uh, be a bit more of a man and get on with life. 
This is why we have the church. This is why Jesus is the head of the church and we're all members of it. We all need each other and we need different things from one another at different times. But what Jesus told all of us, all of his disciples, without qualification, regardless of your temperament, regardless of your situation, what you are commanded to do by Christ is to not be anxious. To seek first the kingdom of God, trusting that your heavenly Father already knows what you need, and to not be anxious about tomorrow, instead to work on today, because each day has enough trouble of its own. This speaks to me powerfully because of my anxious mindset. I don't know if this will relate, all of you will relate to this, but some of you will. If you're given to anxiety, you'll understand. I can preach a bad sermon, and by Monday afternoon, in my mind, I have been fired from the church. I'm living in the wilderness in shame. The church has become a strip mall, and that was all because of one dead duck of a sermon. I can take some setback, some difficulty, some mistake, some sin, and extrapolate it into absolute catastrophic end-of-the-world disaster. Anybody else able to do this? Okay. You are my people. Here's how we obey Jesus. Jesus said, do not be anxious about tomorrow. So three things I do. The moment... I notice that my mindset has fallen into anxiety or complaining or envy because those are the three red flashing lights on the spiritual dashboard that you are not content. If you're complaining, you're not content. If you're looking at the other guy saying, must be nice, wish I were him, he doesn't deserve that, what a jerk. That's envy. You're not content. If you are anxious and turning yourself in, tying yourself into knots and extrapolating one bad day into a ruined life, you're not content. So the moment I notice myself doing that, I catch it. And I realize at this moment, I am not thinking and behaving like a contented man. Paul taught me, Jesus taught me to be content. I'm not, I'm going to recognize it. Does that make sense so far? In the words of one expert, he calls it waking up. And I want to invite you for the rest of the week to catch yourself, to be aware of your inner thoughts, which is the real you. Whatever you're presenting to the world, what you're actually thinking is the real you, and to stop yourself. That's step one. I stop and I wake up and I say to this moment, at this moment, I'm not contented, I'm complaining. At this moment, I'm not contented, I'm anxious. At this moment, I'm not contented, I'm envious. And then I turn to Jesus, who has promised to always be with me, who has promised to strengthen me. How does he strengthen me? He strengthens me when I come back into fellowship with him. Paul said, Jesus stood by me. Here's the good news. He always will. He will always be there. You will never be outside of his care. You will never be outside of his sight. The question is not whether he will be there, but whether you will notice. 
And the reason, the way to notice is to catch your runaway mind running into sinful anxiety, running into comparison, running into envy, running into complaining, and then having awakened, turning to the Lord and say, Jesus, it's me again. I can't believe it, but I was just thinking about this person who has done me so much harm. And I was resentful. I was just comparing my life with the life of someone else, and I was envious. I was just reflecting on my sins, my weakness, my frailty, my effort that came up so short. I was just talking myself into abject failure, and I'm anxious again. And I just want to lay that all out in front of you. There is not one burden you can bring to Christ that he will not understand because he lived it as a human being and he loves you as the eternal God who actually came to rescue you. And then, having done that, first I wake up, then I turn to him, and then in obedience to that last verse, to not be anxious about tomorrow, I ask myself a final question, and this is what gets me moving again. I ask myself, what should I be doing about this right now? Because the envy, the anxiety, the complaining all came about something that made me unhappy, something that was dissatisfactory. The question then to get back into life, to get back in the game, to get back in the fight is, what should I be doing about this right now? Often, it's just to make a note of it, to deal with it later. Often, it's to pick up the phone and make the difficult phone call. If I preached a dog of a sermon on Sunday and I'm lamenting it on Monday, what do you think maybe I should be doing? Probably studying so I don't do it again and we go over two, right? Because then if we go one bad sermon after another, then maybe I've actually created the reality that I feared. You have to live in the present moment because that's all that God has given you. The past is behind you and forgiven by Christ. The future is in God's hands. What you have right now, what anxiety and complaining and comparison and envying denies you is living in the moment that God has given you to please Him right now. And you can always do that. Let me be clear, and I'll be done. I want you to understand that what I'm talking about here is something you're going to have to cultivate. If you are prone to being envious by comparison of complaining, if you are prone to a runaway anxious mind, you've taught yourself those habits. You've put those grooves in your life. You can learn, as Paul twice confessed that he did, you can learn to be content, but you have to cultivate that habit. You have to spend, and let me invite you to spend the rest of the week waking yourself up the moment you discover yourself sliding away from contentment, arresting your mind there, turning to Christ, confessing that sin, asking for his help, his strength, his perspective, and then re-engaging the day that he has actually given you. And you can do all that with the security of what Paul said at the end of Philippians, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 17, if you'll look there with me in closing. Philippians chapter 4, verse 17, Paul says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. 
Paul's saying, I don't want you to misunderstand my joy. I was so overjoyed when, your help, when the help you sent me arrived. I was so happy to see Epaphroditus bringing your gifts, but I'm not in it for the money. I'm not in it for the gifts you sent me. Jesus has taught me to be content in whatever is happening to me. My greater interest is that you yourself will be rewarded. So thirdly, number three, you can be content in the knowledge that Jesus will reward your suffering for his sake. At the end of the Beatitudes, Paul told Christians to rejoice when they were persecuted. Not because Christians are masochists, but because we know in Christ everything that is done for Christ counts. No money, no effort, no love, no forgiveness, no courage, no kindness given in the name of Christ will go unrewarded. Jesus said that even a cup of cold water given in his name will have its own reward. Nothing that you do for Christ will be lost. Everything given to Christ, everything done in his name will count. So take heart, Christian. Contentment is found in Christ, not your circumstances. Let me invite you in closing in a journey this week, and I, I hope many of you will do it. We don't know what 2021 is going to bring. I'm concerned about the mindset of a lot of people I talk to because they have fastened their satisfaction on a change. And they're saying, maybe this, maybe that. And what hangs over those statements is, when things change, then I can go back to being content. If you make your contentment, your peace, your joy depend on circumstances, you're going to be fragile for the rest of your life. You'll waste your life. You'll waste your faith. Jesus will keep you secure, but you will not enjoy your time here with him. You will not live for him. You will make no eternal impact. So let me invite you instead, and if you're in a family in a circle of friends, you live with people who have heard this sermon together, let me invite you collectively to spend the rest of the week waking up and realizing the moment you grow anxious, the moment you detect bitterness, maybe you're so used to being anxious and being gripey that you don't even notice. Ask Jesus to make you sensitive to your discontentedness so you stop it, you turn to him, you confess it, you receive strength from him, and then you re-engage the day. If you do that for a week, I'm talking about a solid conscious week lived in the presence of Jesus, I guarantee you'll be at least a little bit better off by the time we gather again next Sunday. You will have learned the habits, the rhythms of holiness and contentment rather than living in the rut of discontentedness which our culture is working so hard to carve into each of us. And if you don't know Jesus at all, listen, this is where it begins. Your first best move, the thing you need to do first is turn away from yourself, turn away from sin, and entrust yourself to Jesus. If you ha don't have salvation, if you don't have faith in him, this is all true, but none of it applies. You can't practice any of this with Christ until you first have Christ. Let's pray. For those of you who are anxious, to those of you who are given to complaint, 
For those of you who were always making comparisons, I just want to give you a moment to tell Jesus about it. We'll start the practice right now. To just turn to him, confess that to him, and ask him to reorient you, to make you peaceful, to make you grateful, to replace discontentedness with joy instead. And I make this appeal every week. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, if you're one of the many who's watching us online, or maybe you've been coming to church with us for weeks or months, but you're not sure that Jesus is your Savior, please be saved today. I'm not talking to you about religion. I'm not talking to you about a moral self-improvement program. I'm talking to you about repentance. Turning away from your sin and yourself confessing to Jesus, agreeing with Jesus that you have sinned and asking him to save you. If you do that, I pray that you text us and let us know. Send me an email if you prefer. If you're here in person, fill out the card. It's in your bulletin. Let us know that today you stepped toward Christ in faith. Christian, contentment really is possible. Paul learned it. So can we. Jesus, make it so. May we this week, walk so carefully with you day by day, moment by moment, that we find ourselves surprised to discover in place of our weakness and our anxiety and our complaining to find instead your peace and your strength. Thank you that you will walk beside us and stand with us at every moment. You have promised never to leave us. Just give us, Lord, the consciousness and the habits of mind to continually turn to you because you are always there and you alone can let us live far above our circumstances. I pray it in Jesus' name. And Crosspoint said, amen. amen. God bless you folks. I may not see you for the rest of this year. It's that time of year to make that corny dad joke and I apologize. I'll see some of you, I'm sure. But if I don't, happy new year. The church is undeterred. We continue moving forward in this subarctic weather. Okay? We'll be here. I look forward to seeing you next Sunday. Remember, every step you take, Jesus will not only go with you, Jesus will be able and available to strengthen you. God bless you. Love you. Bye-bye.